Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am going to cover in this audio Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. Our context is this. In the first nine verses of Titus, Paul told Titus what the qualifications for an elder were, one of which is they're supposed to be able to teach. And now in this section of Scripture, which I've chosen to, to, to entitle Disobedient and Deceitful Teachers, Paul is going to exhort Titus to use that gift of teaching to refute those who oppose sound doctrine. He's going to jump on false teachers. So we start in verses 10 and 11, chapter 1. Paul says to Titus, For there are also many rebellious people, full of empty talk and deception, especially those from Judaism. It is necessary to silence them. They overthrow whole households by teaching what they shouldn't in order to get money dishonestly. All right, these people are called rebellious. Here's how John Gill describes them. Persons who are not subject to the law of God or gospel of Christ, whose spirits are not subject to the prophets and who will not submit themselves to them that have the rule over them, nor attend to the admonitions of the church, nor be brought into any regularity and order. Now, they're rebellious, but who are they rebellious against? The NIV Study Bible mentions two options. They could be rebellious against the Word of God, or they could be rebellious against Paul and Titus as God's representatives, or in my opinion, both A and B, both the Word of God and Paul and Titus. Rebellious people who know nothing about godly authority. They're full of empty talk and deception. As Clark, Adam Clark puts it, they're all noise, empty parade, and no work. The NIV says their study Bible says they're mere, well, the NIV translation says they are mere talkers. Empty talk means they talk with no substance behind their words. An example of this can be seen in 1 Timothy 1.6, where Paul told Timothy, some have, dem- some have deviated from these sound doctrines and turned aside to fruitless discussion. Much ado about nothing. Talk, 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 but nothing ever happens. People are not led into the knowledge of the truth. Empty philosophy. Paul mentions amongst these people full of empty talk and deception, especially those from Judaism. So the heretics had three main characteristics. Number one, they were legalists. They wanted to require circumcision for salvation. They wanted to replace obedience. They wanted to require obedience to ceremonial laws, as Gill and Clark Say the Judaizers, they were Judaizers who mixed law with the grace of Christ. All right, so they were legalists. That's the first characteristic. The second characteristic of these false teachers is they believed in Jewish myths and genealogies. Titus 1.14, these people, you must not pay attention to Jewish myths and the commands of people who reject the truth. So that's the second characteristic of the Judaizers. First is they were legalists. Second, they believed in Jewish myths and genealogies. And third, they were Aesthetics. Aesthetics. We can look at verse 15 and see that. Let me drop down to verse 15, which we'll get to in a minute. Paul says, To the pure, everything is pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Sex with your wife or your husband is not pure. Eating pork or shrimp is not pure, and so forth. Both their mind and conscience are defiled, so he's talking about aesthetics. So we see that the false teachers there in in Crete were very similar to the ones in Ephesus that Timothy had to deal with. They were Jewish, legalist, and they were Gnostics, or some combination of both of them. Paul says in verse 11, it is necessary to silence them. Whoa, that doesn't sound gentle. I just did a little mini teaching in church yesterday about 
how Paul said over and over again to treat people with gentleness. I was with you as a tender nursing mother. I forgot who he said that to. I think it was the Thessalonians. A tender nursing mother. And he says the elder must be gentle, he tells Timothy. Gentle, 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 gentle. And that here he's going to say sharply rebuke the people who are being seduced by these people, as we'll see in a future verse. And then he says you got to silence the heretics. Well, the situation is different. If people are willing to listen, they are confused, you deal with them gently. But if they're maliciously and stupidly, with a high hand, with malice aforethought, trying to destroy the gospel message, you have to silence them. And that's what Paul tells Titus. Silence them because they overthrow whole households by teaching what they shouldn't, this Jewish legalism and Gnosticism. And then Paul throws in another slam against them. They do it in order to get money dishonestly. And that's because teachers back then took pay, uh, not pay, they took voluntary donations, but they would fool people into thinking they had some kind of deep knowledge in the people. They didn't have schools and colleges and all that kind of stuff. Not that a college is going to give you any wisdom today because they're full of excrement, most of them. Having spent most of my life in a, as a college professor, I know what's out there, and it ain't good, folks. But people want knowledge. They want to know things. It's just in, inherent in us. We want to know. And so people are willing to pay these false teachers so that they th can know something. And so these people were coming up with this phony baloney nonsense in order to make money, and they're doing it dishonestly because Paul attacks their motives. He says they're not, they're not interested in the truth. They're interested in money. I'm sure he had evidence of it to prove it, too, or he wouldn't be attacking their motives. He didn't turn the other cheek. Paul didn't tell Titus, turn the other cheek, because this is not about personal relationships. It's what Jesus' Sermon on the Mount was about. I mean, you know, Jesus, the same man, the same God-man, who said, turn the other cheek, also turned the tables over in the temple and said, you have made my father's house a robber's den. And then he attacked the Pharisees and said they were a brood of vipers. They were snakes. And they were whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. Does that sound like turning the other cheek to you? That, that Sermon on the Mount has been one of the most misinterpreted scriptures in the history of the Christian church, I believe. Turning it on the cheek does not mean you turn your eyes away from evil. The court system, the military, the police have got to use violence sometimes in order to protect the innocent. You cannot, as a blanket thing, condone all violence. Violence that's aimed wrongly to destroy society or destroy another human being, of course, is evil. But sometimes you've got to use violence to stop it. I remember Farrah Fawcett Majors in that movie, The Burning Bed, when she burned up her abusive husband, I, and, and the jury acquitted her. I would have voted to acquit. <laughs> yeah, she premeditatedly murdered him, yeah, but I, I, I'm sorry. You know, sometimes you have to use violence to stop violence. We go to Titus 1, verses 12 through 14. One of their very own prophets, now this is talking about one of these Cretan false teachers, false teachers on the island of Crete. One of their very own prophets. Well, who is this guy that Paul's talking about? He's talking about Epimenides, as John Gill, Adam Clark, and Jameson Fawcett and Brown all say, Epimenides. He had a poem in which these words are found. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. So Paul is quoting one of their own poets that saying that they were liars, evil beasts, and gluttons. The name of the poem was Concerning Oracles. The title supports Paul calling him a prophet, and we'll see later on. A lot of people thought he was a prophet, not just Paul. Adam Clark says several fulfilled predictions were ascribed to him. I'll talk about those in just a minute, too. The poem is no longer extant, unfortunately. Epimenides was Canossus, 
the big city there. I've been there in Crete. It's a great place you ought to go there if you want to see the excavated Minoan capital, the head of the Minoan civilization, the fountainhead of Minoan civilization. John Gill's got an interesting anecdote about Epimenides. It was reported of him that being sent by his father to his sheep in the field, he, by the way, at noon, turned aside into a cave and slept 57 years. Whoa, boy, I bet he was groggy when he woke up after that. Anything to get out of doing work. He lived about 600 B.C. Now, Paul three times quotes pagan authors in the New Testament, which shows that not only was he well-versed in rabbinic literature and law, he was also well-read in non-Christian literature. The three cases are Epimenides here. He quoted the Greek comic poet Menander, 4th century B.C. In 1 Corinthians 15.33, Paul says this, Do not be deceived, and here's the quote from Menander, Bad company corrupts good morals. And then Paul quoted Aratus, and I don't know Aratus, I, I haven't looked him up yet. Aratus says in Acts 17.28, Paul quotes Aratus, For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, quote, For we are also his offspring. The own poet that Paul is talking about is Aratus, who says, For we are also his, God's offspring. So Paul would use, he would quote pagan stuff in order to try to, get his idea across in my teaching yesterday. I mentioned that I'd written an article. I was so tired of people when I would try to rebuke heresy, namely that the resurrection already occurred. I kept noticing that people kept telling me, Dan, you're not loving. I even had somebody doctor a tape at a conference I had spoken at, and one of the fellow conference speakers, a man I knew, spoke at the conference, and probably because I invited him. I think it was probably my conference that I put on. I'm not sure, but I get this anonymous cassette tape in the mail, and I plug it in, and I hear this I hear this fellow speak, this co- colleague of mine speaking at the conference, and he says, Dan Trotter, click his, is not showing love for people, click, when he denounces hyperpreterist, it's obviously doctored very clumsily, but the point was is that because I opposed these heretics that I was not loving. And they used that defense over and over again in a church of a friend of mine where they were operating. And I finally got fed up with it. So I wrote an article called Why It Is Perfectly Okay to Say Naughty Things About Hyperpreterists. And I could have gone through all these scriptures like here where Paul tells Titus, rebuke Crete, where he says um, they must be silenced. <laughs> I could have done that, but instead I quoted Tina Turner. What's love got to do with this? (laughs) Because I got so tired of that. You don't show love. That was a pretty good quote, too, because the person who was involved in that controversy in that church later said he read it and died laughing because he knew what they were doing. He had had that used on him so much. And this is a very common thing. You know, homosexuals, if you start saying, you know, maybe your lifestyle might be destroying you spiritually. Oh, you don't love me. Or any average non-Christian, you try to say you're a sinner and... Your sin, the wages of your sin is death. You might need to re- think about repenting. And what do they say? Oh, you're not showing love. You talk about hell. Oh, you're not showing love. Hey, hey I'm telling you, I'm trying to keep you from going to hell. And then you talk, tell me that I'm not showing love. No, you have to rebuke false words and teachings, especially in the church. You know, you can't go out and rebuke everybody. You, you're not responsible for all the nonsense that's out there in the world. Unlike these people who have a Twitter account think they can denounce every evil they see and think there's going to be good that comes from it. Now, Paul, let me, let's me let go on some more about Epimenides. He was called, Paul calls him a prophet here in verse 12. Why was that? Well, Gill says that Epimenides was thought to be inspired by the gods. 
here's a quote from Gill, quote, he is called by Apuleius, a famous fortune teller, and he is said by Laertius to be very skillful in divination and have foretold many things which came to pass. He was reckoned by many as the seventh wise man of Greece. Plato called him a divine man. Cicero said that, quote, he knew future events and prophesied under a divine influence. Cretans gave him divine honors after his death. This is Clark quoting Plutarch. Here are some examples of his prognostication from Adam Clark. Diogenes Laertius mentions some of his prophecies. Beholding the fort of Munichia, which guarded the port of Athens, he cried out, O ignorant men, if they but knew what slaughters this fort shall occasion, they will pull it down with their teeth. This prophecy was fulfilled several years after when the king Antipater put a garrison in this very fort to keep the Athenians in subjection. I'm not sure what the historical reference is, but apparently Epimenides predicted it. And Plato on the laws, in his book on the laws, says that on the Athenians expressing great fear of the Persians, Epimenides encouraged them by saying that they should not come the Persians should not come before ten years, and they sh that they, the Persians, should return after having suffered great disasters. This prediction was supposed to have been fulfilled in the defeat of the Persians in the battles of Salamis, that's 490 B.C. and Marathon, excuse me, 480 B.C. and Marathon, 490 B.C., the famous Persian war battles with the Greeks. So, this guy's got a big reputation. So Paul's quoting a big shot. Here's another quote from Gill. He, Epimenides, predicted to the like a Demonians, that's the Spartans, and Cretans, the captivity which they should one day be reduced by the Arcadians. The Arcadians were right north of the Spartans in the Peloponnesus in Greece. This captivity, which the Lacedaemonians and Cretans were going to undergo, took place under Eurycrates, king of Crete, and Archidamus, king of Lacedaemon, king of Sparta. I don't know when that was. I'm not familiar with the historical reference, but my point is, is this guy was a big-time prophet. So Paul's got every reason to call him a prophet. And I say prophet, I mean a false prophet. But even false prophets can predict the future sometimes. Let me go down a very small rabbit trail here. In logic, Epimenides is famous for creating the so-called Epimenides paradox. Because when Epimenides says that all Cretans are liars, does he include himself? Well, that if all Cretans are liars, then Epimenides is a liar, and therefore all Cretans aren't liars. Because he's not a liar. So therefore, his statement that all Cretans are liars is not true. There, you know, it goes on and on and on. There are ways you can solve that if you look it up on, in Wikipedia. It's very interesting. All right, so what did Epimenides say? He said Cretans are always liars. Well, now, is that 100% true? Well, of course, that's an exaggeration. It's a generalization, and Paul's quoting the exaggeration, the generalization. Paul didn't believe every Cretan was a liar. I mean, he went around evangelizing in 100 churches there, so... So obviously he doesn't think all of those guys are liars. He's talking about the, he's trying to put the label on these false teachers. And he calls them liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Oh, yes, little Paul, Jeek and Mile, just like Jesus, little Jesus, meek and mild. Let me tell you something. Being in the Christian ministry takes a man with cojones. It really does. Because there, everything will come at you. Every attack of Satan, the terrors of hell, the demons of hell will come after you and try to pull your hair out. Not to mention a bunch of unpleasant people. So no, don't think it's just going to be holding a little old lady's hands and counting the money in the offering plate and going to hospitals and, and, and praying for people that are sick in bed. No, it ain't going to be like that, folks. You're going to be in a battle from day one to, to the day you die. Paul says in verse 
13, this testimony is true. The testimony about Epimenides, about Cretans being liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons is true, so rebuke them sharply. Now, it sounds like it's re- Paul is asking Titus to rebuke the, the false teachers. No, he's talking about Christians. Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Well, somebody that's in the faith is a Christian. So he's worried, he's concerned that Titus, he's concerned that the Christians in Crete will be seduced by these evil beasts, these false teachers, these Jewish legalists, these Gnostics. So rebuke them so that they may be sound in the faith and may not pay attention to Jewish myths and the commands of men. Well, what Jewish myths might he be talking about? Here's what John Gill says. Myths concerning God himself, the angels, and the creation of man. Concerning the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Concerning the Messiah and his earthly kingdom. Well, that's all true, but they made up stories about that that were extra-biblical. Gill goes on, in the feast that will be made for the righteous in his days. A little probably telling you what all the food was going to be at the Messianic Beast. I don't know. Well, yes, here Gill says the food will consist of flesh, fish, and fowl. And myths about the behemoth, myths about Leviathan, myths about Zuz, and of wine kept in the grape from the foundation of the world, and concerning the rolling of the dead through the caverns of the earth at the resurrection, with a multitude of other things which are traditionally received. Now, John Gill's an expert on the Talmud. He knows Jewish folklore, Jewish history, and so I'm sure he has a feel for this more than I do about these myths that these Christians were constantly being hit with. And Paul says, ah, don't pay any attention to that. Don't pay attention to the commands of men who reject the truth. Well, the commands of men probably, as John Gill says, refers to the traditions of the elders. You can't eat meat, you can't eat shrimp, you can't eat pork, you can't spit an apricot pit out of your bed on Saturday, and that kind of thing. Commands, laws, laws, laws. Legalistic laws. Stay away from them, Paul says. Now, a few little odds and ends before we leave these verses. Paul says, Quoting Epimenides, that Cretans are always liars. I sort of mentioned this when I said that they were all liars. That's an overgeneralization. Well, always liars is the same thing. It doesn't mean that in every instance a Crete will lie. A Cretan would lie. Ovid called the Crete, Ovid called Crete, quote unquote, lying Crete. The famous Roman poet called Crete lying Crete. So they become famous for lying. The Greeks had a proverbial saying to Cretanize. It meant to lie, according to the NIV Study Bible. Adam Clark said Cretans said Jupiter's tomb was on Crete. And by this, this proved that all Greeks knew that Cretans were liars, because Jupiter's tomb wasn't on Crete. So they had a reputation for lying. And so Paul uses that reputation against these false teachers. Of course, today, since you can't make any generalization at all before somebody will call you a racist or a xenophobe or something, you can't do that anymore. You can't say the, China, the the coronavirus came from China even though it came from Wuhan, China. Everybody knows that, or at least we think we know it, but that's generalizing. You can't, I guess you can't call German measles German measles because now you're saying something bad about Germans. You can't call MERS Middle East Respiratory Syndrome because now you're prejudiced against people from the Middle East. You can't call Lyme's disease Lyme's disease because it originated in Lyme's tech. Uh, Connecticut, you can't c- call West Nile fever or West Nile fever because that shows that you hate Egyptians. And that's how stupid our culture has become. How absolutely pathetically social justice warrior PC crap our culture has degenerated into. Paul wasn't concerned by that. Gosh, it must be nice to be able to say that Cretans are evil 
beast. I mean, it's impossible to talk without generalizing a little bit. Of course, overgeneralization is is evil too. You end up with false false general generalizations that aren't true because everybody has a culture, but also everybody's an individual. Well, if you make the general statement like, for example, all Chinese people like to eat bats. Well, a lot of them do, but you have to be more specific, mostly in the south of China. And a lot of Chinese people like to eat cats and dogs. But that's in the south of China. And a lot of people in the south of China, I lived there for years, don't eat cats, dogs. Now, a lot of them do. I saw the sign in the restaurant. Dog meat here, advertising dog meat. So don't tell me they don't do it. There was a Chinese woman, a colleague of mine, that we were interviewing somebody, and she said, she interviewing a student who was getting ready to go to Canada, and she said, you know, you're going to meet a lot of stereotypes about Chinese over there in Canada. For example, uh, Chinese people like to eat cats. Uh, how do you deal with that? And I looked at her, and I said, after the after the interview was over privately, her, her English name was Tracy. I said, Tracy, but Chinese people do eat cats. You know that. I just talked to somebody, somebody, a student reporter who had done a story on people in uh, Shantou, the city in Guangdong province in the south of China, who were eating cats. So, see, the problem is, is when you generalize, you can generalize, but you've got to leave room for individual differences. And I'm going to such length over this, again, because of my PC culture. I, I imagine when Paul said it, nobody thought a thing about it, because they understood that Paul was not talking about every Cretan. And this reputation that the Cretans had for being liars, Paul had a chance to directly observe it while he was in Crete. So he might not be just repeating a reputation. He might have actually had firsthand experience of it. We go now to verse 15, Titus 1. Paul says, To the pure, everything is pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. In fact, both their mind and conscience are defiled. To the pure, and that's talking about Christians, those Christians who have been made pure by the blood of Christ, everything is pure. Now, that's not talking about everything, marijuana, cocaine, crystal meth. No, it's talking about everything the legalists were complaining about saying was not pure. That's what he's talking about. Here's a similar scripture, 1 Timothy 4.4, 4, for everything created by God is good. Well, yeah, does that mean I can go out and become a pothead? Or, hey, alcohol, that's created by God, right? So I can go out and drink 200 proof vodka, a bottle a day? No, he's talking about the, the normal things that legalists say you can't eat, like shrimp, like pork, can't drink any wine, that kind of thing. Everything created by God is good. Nothing should be rejected if it is received. But Thanksgiving, he's talking about food most probably there, and the legalists were making legitimate things, or sex with your spouse, or sleep, nothing wrong with those things, or a comfortable shirt, it's not a hair shirt, a comfortable shirt, hey, that's created by God, that's pure, nothing wrong with that. So Paul is blasting the ascetics here, to the pure, everything is pure. Another thing that would not be, cons that Paul is not talking about here is witchcraft books or pornography, that's not pure. He's talking about everything that's normal that you that you would eat, for example, or that that uh, especially concerning food. For, for example, he told the Colossians in Colossians two verse twenty one, these legalists said, "Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch." Is probably referring to to food. Adam Clark says that that verse is appears to have been spoken in reference or this verse we're talking about here and Titus one fifteen, everything is pure. This appears to have been spoken in reference to the Jewish distinctions of clean and unclean meats. Yes, yeah, so I think food is what Paul has on his mind here. 
Could be marriage sex, maybe, but I think it might be food. The legalists will probably oppose marriage sex, too. They say, oh, this is evil. Try to get by with it once every three months if you can. Matthew fifteen eleven says, It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a man. It's talking about food. doesn't defile you if it's normal food. i tell you one thing. Chinese people never in the south of China will never have any trouble with this verse. They know that nothing that goes in the mouth defiles a man. The things they eat over there. I remember there was this yellow wine made out of bull's testicles that they eat during once a year during a certain festival. I forgot the festival now, but I saw a bottle of this stuff. Oh, my gosh. To pay, it's kind of a dark. It looks like urine with bull's testicles floating around. Well, hey, to the pure, all things are pure. So the Chinese people in Guangdong province ain't going to have any trouble with that. But anyway, food doesn't matter what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a man. What goes into your mouth as far as physically, that's a matter of health, physical health, or taste, in the case of that yellow wine. Romans 14.20, do not tear down God's work because of food. Everything is clean, but it is wrong for man to cause stumbling by what he eats. So you see, food can become a matter of legalism very quickly, and the Jews were quick to do it because they had all those dietary food laws, which were invalidated or which were repealed, let's put it that way, in the New Covenant. For example, when Jesus gave that vision to Peter with all the unclean animals in the sheet, and he says, Peter, eat the stuff, eat the snakes, eat the alligators. Paul says these ascetics in verse 15, Titus 1, their mind and conscience are defiled. Yeah, because they always feel guilty. Oh, I eat some pork. God's going to strike me dead. Their minds are always full of, no, no, no. Oh, what did I do? Oh, God hates me. There ain't nothing worse than being a legalist. Unless it's a social justice warrior. Paul says in verse 15, to the unbelieving, to those who are defiled, dirty, nasty, and unbelieving, he's referring to those evil beasts, those liars, the Cretans, nothing is pure. It's ironic that those who are so interested in what meat is pure have impure minds. And that's the way legalism works, because sin is increased when one is under the law. Law increases sin in us, as Paul says in Romans 7. Now, here's some scriptural examples of man-made prohibitions of good things, man-made laws. Matthew 15:10 through 11, Summoning the crowd, he told them, Listen and understand. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. This is Jesus hitting against the traditions of the elders, the oral traditions of the Pharisees. Matthew 15:16 through 20, Are even you still lacking in understanding, he asked? Don't you realize that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But what comes out of the mouth comes from the heart, and this defiles a man. For from the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual immoralities, thefts, false testimonies, blasphemies. Sounds like America. American culture. Twitter culture. These are the things that defile a man, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile a man. Mark seven fourteen through 19 Summoning the crowd again, he told them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. Nothing that goes into a person from outside can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. When he went into the house away from the crowd, the disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, Are you also as lacking in understanding? Don't you realize that nothing going into a man from the outside can defile him? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into the stomach, and is eliminated. As a result, he made all foods clean. Now, by the way, that verse creates problems for when you interpret Matthew 5, where Jesus said not one jot or tittle of the law would pass away until all is accomplished. And, of course, that happened at the cross when Jesus died on the cross. And he said this before he died on the cross. So it sounds like he made all foods clean at the time he spoke it. I don't think so. I think he's 
Mark is referring to. He made all foods clean later on when he died on the cross. That handles that difficulty. Acts 10, 9 through 16, the next day as they were traveling and nearing the city, Peter went up to pray. This is Peter on the way to Cornelius' house in Caesarea. Peter went up to pray on the housetop. Excuse me, this is not Caesarea. It's on his way to Yapa. Peter went up to pray on the housetop about noon. Then he became hungry and wanted to eat. But while they were preparing something, he went into a visionary state. He saw heaven opened and an object that resembled a large sheet coming down, being lowered by its four corners to the earth. In it were all the four-footed animals and reptiles of the earth and the birds of the sky. Then a voice said to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. No, Lord, Peter said, for I have never eaten anything common and ritually unclean. Again a second time a voice said to him, What God has made clean you must not call common. This happened three times, and then the object was taken up into heaven three times to kind of drive the point home. All things are clean to the pure whose heart is pure. Romans 14.20 Do not tear down God's work because of food. Everything is clean, but it is wrong for a man to cause stumbling by what he eats. You can eat everything as long as you don't cause your brother to stumble who has an overall conscience about something, a, scru- a scrupulous conscience. So you see with all those verses, you put them together, you see how much emphasis there was on food and how food can become a legalistic man-made tradition. That idea was everywhere back in the ancient world and first century, first century Judaism and Christianity. Well, legalists always have a, a dirty conscience, a guilty conscience because of what they ate, but Look at Christians' consciences. Our consciences are clear. First Timothy one nineteen. You Timothy, having faith and a good conscience. First Timothy three nine, referring to deacons holding the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Praise the Lord for that. We go to verse sixteen, we'll finish up Titus one. They profess to know God, that's the false teachers, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable disobedient and disqualified for any good work. Holman Christian Study Bible has translation has three D's referring to these bad guys. Detestable, detestable, disobedient, and disqualified for any good work. Now they profess to know God. Well, how can they profess to know God if they're heretics? Because they were Jewish heretics, most probably. As Adam Clark says, John Gildow suggests that they could be Judaizing Christians who claim to know Christians because they do know Christ because they're Christians, but then they fallen off and got, and fallen away from grace and fallen back under the law. I don't think so. Do you really think that Paul, who's, who's always gentle toward his believers, even when they were wrong, like in, if you read the book of Corinthians, First and Second Corinthians, he had to be real rough with them, but he still loved them, called them brothers all, all the time. Would he call the Corinthians detestable, disobedient, and disqualified? I don't think so. He's talking about the false teachers here. They deny him by their works. This is an example of how we can know them by their fruits, as Jesus once said. I don't have the site in front of me, but you you know that phrase. You know them by their fruits. Your works is how you kind of judge things. So they not only had bad doctrine, they also had bad practice, as Adam Clark says. The NIV Study Bible says they stood condemned by the test of personal conduct. So if you see somebody that's living, let's say he's got three girlfriends that he fornicates with, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, takes the next four days off to teach the Bible to your church. But And he's a great teacher, great Bible teacher. I mean, everything he says is the Word of God. You going to listen to him? Not me. So a good, a good teacher who's good with doctrine has got to be good with his actions, too. On the other hand, if you have somebody teaching bad doctrine, unsound doctrine, but he lives a most morally pure life, you going to listen to the bad 
teaching? Of course not. It takes both, folks. Word and deed. Word and deed. Sound words and sound deeds. Now, when Paul calls these people detestable, disobedient, and disqualified, he calls a spade a spade. He's not worried about being called unloving or divisive. Oh, you're so divisive. You believe in the resurrection of the dead. Oh, how many times have I heard that from hyperpreterist heretics? Jameson, Foster, and Brown make the point that it was the false teachers themselves who were detestable, not the food they were complaining about. All right, we have finished with chapter 1 of Titus. In our next audio, we are going to take up chapter 2. I'll probably do the whole chapter. Paul exhorts Timothy to be a good teacher, as opposed to all these bad, I'm sorry, not Timothy, Titus, as opposed to all these bad teachers that Paul has dealt with in chapter 1. We're going to see what it's like to be a good teacher. So I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one. 